This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Later in this hour, John Nichols will be in with his Today's Political Update. First up, the great Seymour Hirsch talks about Milai and how he got started as a reporter. Trump Watch starts right now. Seymour Hirsch is one of our heroes. In 1970, he won a Pulitzer Prize for his expose of the My Lai Massacre. He was a 33-year-old freelancer at the time. Since then, he's won pretty much every other award. He's worked as a staff writer for the New York Times and the New Yorker, where he wrote during the Iraq War. He's also written a dozen books. The new one is Reporter, a Memoir. Cy Hirsch, welcome to the program. Glad to be here. Well, let me list some of the big stories of yours featured in this book. Briefly, Abu Ghraib, Watergate, CIA surveillance of the anti-war movement in the Nixon years, the crimes of Henry Kissinger and the CIA in Chile and other places, and of course, the first and most unforgettable, Mi Lai. For me, the most powerful of your Milai stories was one of the follow-ups of the original revelations that American soldiers killed unarmed Vietnamese civilians. Uh, 504 is the Vietnamese count. The U.S. Army now says 347. You learned that a lot of the shooting had been done by a soldier named Paul Meadlow with your characteristic doggedness, you found Meadlow's mother in a small town near Terre Haute, Indiana. What happened when you met her? Well, you, you have to understand, this is these kids that were in this unit, they were mostly underclass, a, lar- a larger percentage of uh, African Americans than in America uh, generally, uh, same for Hispanics, and among the whites, most of them were rural and not very well educated. Paul Meadlow was from, the town was called New Goshen. It was a farming community um, um, 20 or 30 miles outside of Terre Haute, Indiana, which is, you know, <laughs> I don't know, from uh, 100 miles from Indianapolis, well, you know, wherever it is. I learned about the kid. I learned he'd done a lot of shooting. I learned that the day after he'd done a lot of shooting, he lost a leg. He stepped on a landmine in Vietnam. They were, on, they were just patrolling like it was another day, the day after they murdered 500 people. And so I call up before I'm coming. I was, I think, in Salt Lake, and I, I found the number that looked like the right number, and I called. I said, I think I'm looking for your son, Paul. How is he? And whatever she said, well, what do you want to know? And I said, well, how's his leg? She said, well, he's doing fine. So I knew I had the right person. Said I was a reporter. Went to see her. Got there. It took all day. Got there late the next day. I don't know how in the hell I ever found New Goshen, little in the house. She comes out. I'm, I tell her I'm the journalist. I introduce myself and said, I'm the guy that called last night. Uh, where's your son? Is he here? And she said, he lives, there's a separate house. These are all wooden shacks. She said, he lives there with his wife. And I said, um, is it okay to talk to him? She said, well, you'll have to ask him. I, you know, I, I can't speak for him. And then she looked and she said to me, you know, she said, I gave them a good boy and they sent me back a murderer. Wow. And I got to tell you, I mean, you, you don't get those lines very often, like, like never. I just like froze. Um, what could you say? So I went in, and I went into his place, and for some reason, 
what I did, I didn't know him. He was a big boy. And I said, um, he, he knew I was coming. He said, I, I knew you were going to come today. My mom told me. I said, I want to talk about what happened. He said, well, I don't know. I said, but before they do, do that, I said, do me a favor. Take off your shoe. I want to see what they did to you. What's your new leg look like? And he was happy to do it. He took off his shoe and he showed me the prosthetic leg, took it off. It took a month. I later learned five months in a hospital to recover from that uh, terrible wound to his leg. I said, so tell me what happened. And he began to say, I was, uh, he began to tell the story of just shooting. He put seven, seven or eight clips of 17 bullets and shot people in a ditch again and again and again. And uh, Callie kept on saying, do it. Most of the other boys were equally as uneducated. The other boys did not shoot. Uh, very few of the African-American guys, the black guys did. Most of them just stayed away. Uh, and same with the Hispanics. Uh, it was a white boy shoot. Let's go back to the beginning of your story. We're interested in how you got started. Were you the kind of kid in high school who edited the school newspaper and constantly got in trouble with the principal over the stuff you wrote? No. No, I never had anything to do with journalism. My, 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 um, my father was uh, an Eastern Europe from uh, uh, Lithuania. My mother was Eastern Europe from Poland. They weren't very much educated. They were sort of off the screen. I was... I have a twin brother and two older sisters that were twins. I did a lot of sports. It was a perfectly ordinary, if lower middle class life. There was always enough food to eat. My mother baked a lot. If she didn't bake, we later learned that she would pretend to bake, buy stuff in the bakery and tell us she gave, you know, that she communi- communicated to my brother and me by, by um, food. My father just didn't communicate. He was sort of, you know, uh, I think really unhappy at where he was in life. He was only in the 40, he died at 49 of cancer. He smoked three or four packs of Lucky Strikes a day. And so I, I didn't have any intellectual role models, um, except that when I was about 12 or 13, I joined the Book of the Month Club. Huh. And I paid, I think, either 99 or a dollar a month. And I always picked the nonfiction weekly, I mean, monthly book. And half the time it was J. Edgar Hoover telling us about communism or somebody else like that, <laughs> McCarthy. But the other half was stuff that I got into, you know, uh, the Habsburg monarchy, I remember, the Catholic Church, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, history about uh, the China. You know, they would get these goofy things every, mo- every other month. And so I, I read a lot as a kid. I, school was, I was always good in school. And so in, when I was in my third year of high school, my father um, was diagnosed with a cancer that wasn't, you know, even then we knew it was very bad. It was an advanced lung cancer, and he probably would metastasize, and so I became, uh, I was more active than my brother and my family. The father's business was a little ghetto cleaning store in the black neighborhood of Washington, and Chicago, rather, on the south side, um, Indiana Avenue, right in the middle of what used to be uh, 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 James Lonigan, Chicago, if you know that novelist. Uh, you know, uh, Stud Turkle would talk about those days in the 30s when it was a mostly white neighborhood. Anyway, but it was all black. And so I worked there. I, be, I took over the business. I, I gave up on school, and I ended up um, uh, I ended up uh, I ended up going to junior college. My brother, who was very interested in, he's a physicist now. He was always interested in. When he was 14, he was reading Norbert Wiener. So he had to go away. I was the I was the one guy in the family that could run the business. You know, there's a. A Yiddish word they, they would use. My parents spoke Yiddish, was seichel, which means sort of a common sense. Yeah. So I, 
I ran the business, and school just disappeared. I almost flunked out, but I graduated, and I went to the local junior college, free tuition. And the third, second or third week, I did a paper in English and a, for a professor named Kogan, who had just, I didn't know that at the time, but he had just gotten his doctorate in English from the University of Chicago, and this was his first job, lucky guy, to get a job teaching. And at uh, maybe the third week in school, there was some paper I did comparing a couple of books, and I guess I'd gotten into the books. And at the end of class, he called uh, the, uh, Professor Kogan and said, is Seymour Hersh here? And I, you know, like anybody else, I was in the back row, and I thought I'd really screwed up. I went up there, and I'll never forget this. In fact, I did, but he told the story to me much later. Um, he wrote a letter later, but uh, he said to me, what are you doing here? What are you and doing here? I knew what he meant. I knew that why am I not, you know, the other two, I, I had scored some very high in a test in the third year of high school, public high school in the Hyde Park, very good high school. I don't know how good schools are now anymore in that part of Chicago, but there was great then. I was in the math club and the chess club. I also played baseball when I had time. I was a good ball player. But anyway, um, and um, <laughs> I, I knew what he meant. And he said, <laughs> I asked where I lived, and I sort of mumbled around, and he said, uh, can you meet me, this is, let's say, Tuesday, in two days at 9 o'clock in the morning at the University of Chicago Admissions Office. And I University of Chicago Admissions right. Office. Well, I grew up in the South Side, but it was Chicago was on, you know, I was on 47th East. Chicago was on in the 60s. It was far away yeah. on the Midwest. It was another world. And I went, I went there, and I took, this is the Hutchin days, and I took a test. And, of course, I could always write. I don't know why. I could always do it the first draft, say what I want. You know, and, that, and from a little age. So that and, was okay. And what year are we in? We're 1954. Um, uh, I just graduated from high school, my first two, two weeks of college, junior college, free. Um, and just some school that the University of Illinois ran in, down by in Lake Michigan, in a building off Lake Michigan that had been made. It was a, 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 it was a dock that had been made for training sailors, but they turned it into a, a, a junior high school. Guys came back from World War II. And they didn't have money to go downstate where the main campus of Chicago was, the Illinois, rather, University of Illinois at Champaign, big school. So the university, by 1949, built a junior, junior two-year school. The good students would then finish downstate. Anyway, um, the bottom line is I got accepted. I could have been a junior. <laughs> they do those things because I placed out of English and American history and Chinese history, all the stuff I've been reading. <laughs> but I knew nothing. So I, I just became a regular student, and I had a free, I had a wonderful run. And so here, people ask me about America. My, my, my father dies when I'm 17. I run the business for four years while I'm going even to the university and, and trying to figure out about growing up and girls and stuff like that, all that stuff you have to figure out. And I'm doing it living with my mother. <laughs> in the apartment we had. And anyway, somebody asked me, once questioned my patriotism, and I remember saying, listen, I said, I grew up poor on the South Side. I didn't pay for education. I, went, I got a great education. And 11 years after getting out of college, and I wasn't at, I didn't go to, uh, I wasn't at the I was editor of the Harvard Crimson or the Yale Daily News. I'm sticking with the Milai story, two fingers in the eye of a sitting president and getting prizes and fame and glory. Don't tell me about America. <laughs> I have more faith in America than most people would. I, I saw it firsthand. It's an, we are, we are, there's nothing, you know, you can worry you want about Trump's not going to destroy the good. I mean, he's not going to help it, but he's not going to destroy the good. And we'll get 
back. We'll get it back. We'll survive. Trump's not going to destroy the good. Seymour Hirsch talking about his memoir, his memoir, it's titled Reporter. I spoke with him last week. Let's get back to that interview now. In your book, you write about your first job as a journalist at the City News Bureau in Chicago. One of the big lessons you learned there as a cub reporter came when you were a, a police reporter and a call came in that a cop had shot and killed a suspect trying to escape. You rushed to the scene. What did you learn, and what story did you write? Well, this is, don't forget, let's see. I, 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 the City News Bureau, uh, I had no interest in newspapers at all, but I, I went to law school. I got into law school. I applied to law school three days before the term began. This is how ancient it was in 1958. Um, but there was a professor there who knew me and liked me, and he got me in within a day. And I did—I was all right for two thirds, but I really got bored by it. It's so so boring, memorizing stuff, and um, you know it's hard to deviate from what the press. Anyway, I sort of gave up on it, and I was selling beer. You know, typical lost kid. I was reading a lot, and I—I—I I, I, I know I said this in the book. But one of my favorite books was uh, "It's All Bella's the Adventures of Augie Marsh," about a kid from Chicago who wasn't making it. <laughs> I could identify with that. But you know, after four years of running the store with my mother part time, uh, I graduated from the University of Chicago. My brother went off and got a, the deal with my brother. He would go off to downstate. Uh, he would get a good job. He went to California, got a job as an electrical engineer, and went to night school to get his doctorate. But he took my mother, so I was free. And so I did what I did, dropped out of law school, bummed around, got a job because City News, somebody told me about City News Bureau. It's a police agency for the major four Chicago newspapers. So much crime, so much court stuff. They set up a news agency. If you remember, there's a famous play by Ben Hick called uh, Front Page. Yeah. You know, uh, th- that's the City News. City News was full of aggressive guys, young guys wanting to get hired by one of the Chicago papers or somewhere else who were going to spend a year covering police and fires and uh, being the first people on the scene for the four dailies. A real big story, the dailies would send somebody down, you know, to cover it and take it away from us. But we were the first word. We sent our stuff by pneumatic tube. And I was a copy boy. I applied for a job. They, they, half the people came from the Northwestern University School of uh, Medill Journalism. The other half they hired if you had a B.A., no experience needed, so I applied. By serendipity, six, seven months later, somebody called, and I was where the f- I was at the right phone at the right time, and they said there's a job, and I went there, and I, I later watched that when they had a stack of applications, and if the, nobody answered the 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 first the application they called for, went to the back of the stack. Hmm. Stack, it's a big stack, so it was sheer luck. I got a job. I'm a copy boy for a couple months. I'm a little mouthy, you know, but so what? I get finally get assigned to downtown police. And here I am covering the Chicago police midnight to eight. That's what they call it the lobster trick. Not much goes on. You know, part of the time, <laughs> the cops would bring us some dope they confiscated, some Mary Jane, we called it. We'd smoke a joint and watch uh, some of the stag films they caught. Cops were pretty nice. I got along with the cops. Just like I get along with guys in the military. You know, if you just want to do your job, I'm your guy. If you, if you, t- if you take the oath of office to the Constitution and you mean it, and not to the president, I'm your guy. And there's a lot of people in this town in Washington that do that. Anyway, and so I learned a lot. I learned about, uh, I learned about race. I learned all I needed to know. But, but one of the things I learned, I had to go in the Army. I'd already been scheduled to go into the Army in, in a few months. And um, um, uh, maybe a, a month or so before going in, um, I was working the night shift. We had the police radio. We could listen to it in, in the station. 
and the parking lot for the girl, this is uh, Central Police and um, somewhere in the middle of downtown Washington, Chicago rather, and um, a big station, the headquarters. And the two cops called in and said they have a suspect and he tried to get away and they shot him and were coming in uh, to do a report. So they were coming to the main downtown police station. Uh, the two cops came and being energetic, I, instead of waiting for them to report, I ran down to the basement of the police station just to get the cops when they came in. And I, I happened to get there just as the squad car pulled in and two beefy, obviously Irish, red-faced cops overweight got out and one of their buddies said so you had a guy try to escape on you he said no one of them said to his buddy he said no I, you know i told the n- uh you get out of here beat it and i shot him you know and i plugged him when he was going down an alley and i heard it you know wow wow i immediately disappeared from view i didn't want the cop to know i saw i heard that because this is chicago 1960 you did not mess around with the cops except you do it procedurally you don't stick your nose out that much i knew and um um and so i what i did is i called my editors i had only been at the city news about four months i called it the day night editor whatever it was and he said do nothing i said what are you talking about the guy said he shot him in the back and he said he didn't say he shot him in the back he just shot him when he tried to go he told him to beat it and then he shot him and my editor said it's your word against the cops you know if you the the distinct impression I was left with is not only would you not be able to confirm the story, you, you would be in big trouble for telling the story. Hmm. So I waited a couple of days until the, uh, I went in and got the, the coroner's report, sort of casually looked at a bunch of them, and sure enough, there were three holes in his back or two or four, I don't remember. It was the right guy. And so then I called back and I said, there's some evidence. This is really important. And the editor said to me, and you have to remember, I've only been there for about four or six months. The editor said to me, you don't understand what you're doing. Forget about it. It's not going to happen. You're not going to write that story. We're never going to handle it. I presume they were worried about their relationship with the police, too. Uh, we're talking about tyranny, really, in a way, but that's another story. And, and so I, I later went into the Army. You know, I, I was smitten by the business of being a reporter. I really liked it. It was fun. It was exciting. I felt I was my own man, you know, after working in this cleaning store for a long time felt I had control of my life, but I was also very depressed because it was self-censorship. We had censored a good story. My editor censored. it. I was not powerful enough or smart enough to figure out a way to get around it. But I remember feeling this is, this is not a perfect business. And you know what? I'm also not perfect because I went along with it. I went along with it. Seymour Hirsch talking about his memoir. It's called Reporter. We taped this interview last week. We'll have more with Seymour Hirsch in a minute on KPFK when Trump Watch continues. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK, streaming at kpfk.org, and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Later in this hour, we'll speak with John Nichols. He'll have today's political update. But first, I want to return to our interview with Seymour Hirsch. He's one of our heroes. 
1970, he won a Pulitzer Prize for his expose of the My Lai Massacre. At the time, he was a 33-year-old freelancer. Since then, he's won pretty much every other award. He's worked as a staff writer for the New York Times and the New Yorker, where, where he wrote during the Iraq War. Some of the other big stories of his, which he writes about in this book, Abu Ghraib, he got the photos of Americans torturing Muslim prisoners into print in America. He also exposed CIA surveillance of the anti-war movement in the Nixon years. And he wrote a lot about the crimes of Kissinger and the CIA in Chile and other places. And of course, the first and most unforgettable of his stories was Mi Lai. Here's the final section of the interview we recorded last week. Let's talk about the world right now. A lot of people say we are now in a new golden age of investigative journalism. Not since the glory days of Watergate has there been so much to do and so many talented people doing it. I wonder if you agree. Nope, not at all. I think what we have now going, I think some of the basic questions, you know, look, uh, I, I didn't support for Trump. I, I don't support his views. I see him as the orange man, but I also see him. You know, I also understand he was elected by uh, by a percentage of the people in the country. Maybe she got more votes, but he was elected by the, uh, the he got a plurality of electors. He won the election. He's president, and so. But on the other hand, there's two new elements in the game. One is cable news in which you have panel after panel and night after night, and no matter which, which, which news broadcast, in which the most lethal, too lethal, most, you know, the panels of journalists and reporters, let's talk about the new, new Trump this. And the first two words you hear 90% of the time from the panelists are the most lethal words, I think, in the, in the language today, I think. I don't care what somebody thinks. I want to know what they know. And so you have this, net, this layer of instant gratification, instant news, and the White House, no matter how much Trump may lie, the, the White House can release a, a, a one-page document alleging something around the world. And CNN and, uh, and MSNBC and Fox will have Crytron, I think. What do they call it? Crytons? Yeah. Those, those, those things that go across the bottom of the page. Yeah. Breaking news. White House says 42 killed in Yemen raid. You know, nothing is checked. Everything's taken on face value. It cheapens the whole product. And so what you have now, this great division, we've always had a division in this country. What's new? You know, we've always been divided. You know, um, go look at Little Miss Sunshine. Remember that movie? Yeah. About, uh, a wonderful movie because underneath it all, it's about a group of people that like to dress their five-year-old girls with, uh, you know, with sequins and eyelashes and beauty contests. It's madness. That, you know, for most of us it's madness, but there's a lot of people in the American pe- country that are different than we in New York are. So you have... This incessant race to produce stories, you, 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 uh, there's, there's no checking. It's just bam. It's just bam, bam, bam. Um, and since uh, Trump, whether you like him or don't like him, is catnip for the cable ratings and catnip for the number of subscribers that the uh, New York Times tells us every three months they get, mostly online, because they're doing anti-Trump left, right, and center. So you get this complete... N- complete sort of dichotomy in the press corps. Um, uh, there's no longer, you know, uh, uh, if I have a tooth filled, I do not ask my dentist that I've gone to for 20 years, never have, are you a Democrat or Republican? Are you a, a Trump man or not? I don't do a litmus test on them. 
I'm, uh, he's a professional. I think I'm a professional. I can think I don't like Trump, and he scares the hell out of me. But I can also think, in some weird way, he's a Trump. You know, you can't underestimate him. He's a, he's a circuit breaker. Yes, he'll say yes to going to North Korea without knowing a goddamn thing about it because that's his style. And you can criticize him all you want for it, but the fact of the matter is, he's going to go. And you know, the whatever they need to do gets filled in later. And if he if he on a weekend the tension is flagging, he'll say. I'm not going to go and write a letter about it and then dominate news for three more, four more days. I happen to believe he's, being, he's playing the press a hell of a lot more than the press wants to think. But that's just what I believe. That's what I think. It doesn't mean anything. What are the big stories that you think need to be written right now? Are they about the Trump organization's finances or are they about something completely different? Well, I think some of the premises of our time, post-election, post-Hillary defeat, need to be analyzed. I've learned, you know, I do most of my stuff as, as military and intelligence and that kind of stuff. I've been doing it for 50 years. And any time I see the American government all coming out, rushing to a judgment, as they did after um, the election, before, before he was inaugurated, Trump, uh, coming out with what they called as, as um, uh, 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 high-confident assessments, that uh, the Russians hacked into the DNC, uh, John Pedosa's emails, and that turned the election. High confidence in that judgment. And um, I also saw there were assessments made of high confidence for, for two years after, nine, after 9-11 that um, the Iraqis have WMD. Even after it was clear they didn't, they were still putting out assessments. So I don't trust. I, I can tell you we're good. The American signals intelligence, we always cry about the Chinese and the uh, 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 Iranians and about the Russians, how good they are. Listen, we get it all. We collect everything, and we have software that monitors it with algorithms to seek out words or phrases. We, don't, we just don't collect bits. We collect it all because you have to collect it all. It's incredible, and we're competent. And I could tell you right now... Um, High confidence means, to me, is we don't have a clue. We don't know. I'll tell you what else it also means. It also means that's one alternative. The other alternative, and I only have two in this case, is we know, but you don't want to hear what we're going to tell you, so we're not going to tell you what you know, what what we know. I I, I do think we have some idea. I certainly know that that we have the capability to know, and I can tell you cases left, right, and center where we did let the press know we know. I'll give you one quick example. Yeah. Sony was, was um, hit, remember, was broken into its, its Internet by the North Koreans. Remember that story? Very yes. embarrassing. Sony, some nasty comments about Obama being black or whatever, and some, you know, all sorts of pay stuff. And the American government initially said North Korean, and over the next few weeks there was a lot of, oh, we're not sure, in the press. And then one day there was a series of briefings given to five or six major newspapers, and after that, there were stories saying, uh, we do know it was a North Korean, without saying how. I, I know about this from inside. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the bottom line is, we, when we want to know, we can know. So I would, be go- I would do that. I would look at what the FBI knew about the Gmail. Uh, I think it was much deeper. I, would, I, would, I, would, I wouldn't worry that much about what Comey says, because I find him very strange. His book is strange. But I would go deeper into the Gmail, and uh, I, I would just... I want to know, what did Hillary tell some of the senior people in the Obama intelligence community? What, that, what would happen to them? 
what kind of jobs might they get under her presidency? I, I do think there's a lot of different reporting to be done. And this doesn't mean that I'm not aware that Trump has put together the worst cabinet, that he doesn't read, that he's very dangerous. Um, but uh, I, I tell you, then, uh, I also think he's going to pull troops out. He's very mercantile. He's going to pull troops out of, out, of, out of South Korea if they get a deal. And the whole thing about the Korea North and South is, as some of your audience surely knows, there's been three or four major disarmament meetings between the two of them without, without American involvement. And they've always broken down because the South always had, usually because of the South was aggressive and what it wanted from the North, more than the North. In this case, the South has new leadership. They're very open about it. They're keeping it going. I think they're going to get a deal. I think Trump will get a lot of attention for it without having done that much for it. I think Trump can also, anytime he wants, go to Russia and meet with Putin, and he probably will probably call him best buddy. I think it's sort of interesting. <laughs> I know it's, per- I, I, I feel like I live, in, I live in northwest Washington. I feel like if I say too many things that are accommodating towards Trump, I'm going to be firebombed. <laughs> but, you know, it's a tough neighborhood I live in. Very, very democratic. But, you know, I'm not saying back off on it, but I'm just saying, come on, Giuliani. How many times are you going to hear the story? They, so they went five months ago and said the guy can pardon himself. He can't pardon himself. <laughs> and I don't see Mueller doing you know, I tell you, meanwhile, uh, since this stuff's gone on, he's gone up seven, eight points in the ratings. He's higher than he ever was, 47, 48%. <laughs> I got to tell you, I think he's crazy like a fox. I think we're all misreading him. One last thing. One reviewer wrote that reading your memoir was, quote, like visiting a lost world, close quote. I wonder if that's the way you see it. Um, when you had time, helped, when it, you could spend helped, weeks and months on a story. Well, of course, that's obvious. But there was also something else. I was there in the time of Watergate. We had a president on the run. Um, and uh, what we were saying in the media, I was with Carl and Bob Woodward. Um, uh, there were a lot of good reporters writing about it. I mean, it wasn't just me. There were, the Washington Star had a terrific guy. The L.A. Times, Jack Nelson was doing great stuff. And so there was, it wasn't just a Bob and Carl show. And I was doing a lot of good stuff, too, obviously, at the time. So once I got into the story, it took like hell to get in there. But once I did, uh, and uh, it, it, we were believed. Uh, we know from the from the Nixon tapes that there was talk about two sided that what he saw the Janus will the Janus notion, what he showed us wasn't very pleasant, but the dark side really was dark in yeah. the tapes. Uh, the one thing I say about Trump, if you ever got a tape on Trump, is what he is is what he is. Yes, you know he's just a real estate guy you'd never buy a used car from. So, but he is what he is. There's no there'll be no tapes. About some guy plotting. He just—he's right there in our face with this uh, five-year-old mentality, uh, impulse-driven. Uh, so you—you you had something different then. You had a president on the run, and we were credible. Ford turned it around. I write quite a bit about it, even at the New York Times. I, I write about a very sad episode where I was doing something about foreign, foreign—the killing of foreign, um, foreign intelligence, foreign leaders—and uh, I had the information and. And Ford called in my, my people, my editors at the Times, without me, and he put him on, you know, he made it impossible for me to write the story by telling him something and put it on background. The same story that I think the White House knew I had. I mean, I was asking questions about it. Killing a foreign leader is Castro at all. Anyway, um, um, 
I left at times when I was doing something on corporations and an editor showed me a message he'd received from the editors at the time saying, and this is in 79, saying, um, and I had this run, you know, I mean, all these, you know, that 40 prizes in, you know, three days, something like that, oh, an hour, <laughs> whatever it was. <laughs> anyway, um, uh, an editor showed me a message from one of the deputy editors in the business page with whom I used to fight all the time, but that's where the story was in 79. We were in no wars. The war, there was trouble between Vietnam and China, but that was a, that was an insignificant thing. Anyway, we weren't in it. Um, and I was doing corporate stuff, malfeasance, and the letter said, there's a message to the editor in Washington where it's back working. I'd been in New York before that, saying, Cy Hirsch is notoriously anti-corporation. Be sure you watch it. And the editor, who was mystified, said, what is this about? I said, they're nuts, and I quit the next day. There was nothing like it. I, I, I used this childish language in writing about Watergate in 72. So you can write anything you want about the president. I say, boy, wake up, boy, hear story, boy, get story, buy, put story, paper, no trauma. Hmm. <laughs> it got, once that was over, Jerry Ford's in, and then um, uh, uh, Jimmy Carter comes in. All of a sudden, we're back to square one. I'm fighting to get stories in. I'm being told that it was clear that nobody likes stories about corporate wrongdoing and what involved Democrats. It was pretty funny. Seymour Hirsch, his new book is called Reporter a memoir. I love the whole thing. Sai, thanks for talking with us today. Hey, that was, it was fun. I'm sorry you didn't get to talk say anything, but that's, that's okay. <laughs> I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, and this is Trump Watch. Uh, we recorded that interview with Seymour Hirsch last week. There are a couple of things. Let me just list two things I did not get to talk to him about. Um in his book, Reporter, he discusses some stories he did not write. The one that's gotten the most uh, attention is a story that in 1974, uh, he heard that Richard Nixon's wife, Pat, had been hospitalized after she had been punched by her husband. At that point, uh, uh, Nixon had already resigned, was out of office, and they'd moved uh, back uh, to to uh, Orange County. Uh Hirsch did not report that story. He explains in his book that at the time, newspapers did not print stories like that because there was supposedly a, far, a firm line between private and public. And as long as Nixon did not make policy decisions because of his violent marriage, uh, it, that sort of thing should remain off the record. Now, he says, of course, he knows that the president punching his wife would be a huge story, and that's one sign of how, uh, how the Me Too movement in particular has changed journalism. And there's one other story in Cy Hirsch's book that I didn't get to ask him about that really sums up his approach to reporting. It was December 1974. He was working late at night on an expose for the New York Times of the CIA's domestic spying program, which turned out to be one of the biggest stories of his career. He handed in his piece after midnight, and it was much longer than the word limit he was assigned. The night editor said he would only print the number of words that were assigned. He would not give Hirsch more space. What did Hirsch do then? In his words, quote, I went nuts, close quote. He called the reporter's editor, who was Abe Rosenthal, at home at 2 in the morning. This is something reporters usually don't do. 
the editor's wife, whose name was Anne, picked up the phone, uh, but explained, he says, with much bitterness that her husband had left her and was at his girlfriend's house. Hirsch was horribly ashamed to have exposed this embarrassing situation and, and apologized and hung up. But after a few minutes, he called her again and he asked, did she know the girlfriend's name? That's the sort of thing that made Hirsch the great reporter that he was. You can read more about it in his book, Reporter, A Memoir. Next up, John Nichols with today's political update. That's in a minute on KPFK, when Trump Watch continues. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK, streaming at kpfk.org, and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Coming up at 4 tonight on KPFK, this is happening, Jerry, quickly. But first, today's political update with John Nichols. Of course, he's national political correspondent for The Nation. His most recent book is Horsemen of the Trumpocalypse. We reached him today in Madison. John, welcome back. It's a pleasure to be with you, brother. You know, can I start by telling you something that will make you happy? Sure. All right. So I was just on a panel. There's a 60s reunion in Madison. It's a big thing um, with lots of rockers and cultural people, blah, blah, blah. So I'm with two guys who just wrote a great book, or wrote a great book a number of years ago called We Gotta Get Out of This Place. And it's about music in the Vietnam War. Craig Werner and Doug Bradley fabulous panel it's going great somebody in the crowd says you know can can did you write in your book anything about john lennon and <laughs> the war and and you know vietnam and the you know the surveillance on lennon and all the concerns they had about this guy had long long questions and craig and doug no we you know we were really writing about the experience of guys in vietnam we didn't write so much about lennon and i said you should go get a book by this guy named john Wiener." And like there was all these people in the crowd writing down your name. <laughs> well, John Nichols, thank you very much. This is, hey, what are friends for? Uh, good news. That's that literally twenty minutes ago. <laughs> just so you know, I'm always well, on, I'm always on the case. For thank you. you, thank you very much. Well, in addition, in addition to that good news, there's some other fascinating good news from Wisconsin. The story of a special election for the state senate. Tell us the story of District 1. So District 1 is up on the northeast corner of Wisconsin. And for geography buffs, if you put your hand up, you know, it's the thumb, right? It's up, up there in that part of the state. Got it. And it's, it's a rural area, a lot of dairy farms, um, a lot of small towns, and it is a scorchingly Republican area. It's a place where Trump won by around 20 points oh. back in 2016, where Scott Walker won by 23 points in his last election campaign. And it is a place that has not elected a Democrat to the state Senate since Gerald Ford was president. <laughs> wow. So this is Republican turf, okay? Yeah. We had a special election. A special election was held on Tuesday. Scott Walker 
tried desperately to avoid the special election. He said he wasn't going to schedule it because there's nothing happening this year. Then, of course, the legislature went in session. He was totally lying. Um, then a judge ordered him to hold a special election. He refused. Then another judge ordered him to hold a special election. He appealed. And then, and then, have we lost John Nichols? We have lost John Nichols. We need to find out what happened to the special election. Uh, we are speaking with John Nick. We were speaking with John Nichols in Madison. Somehow we lost the connection. We're telling the story of how in a district for the state Senate that Trump won by 20 points two years ago, a special election was held <clears throat> against the wishes of the governor, Scott Walker, and we're about to hear what the results were. We are back with John Nichols. Trump won by 20 in 2016. What happened now? Yep. I know. So it's like Walker did everything he could to avoid holding the special election. And he finally was ordered to do so. And, and people are like, this is such a Republican district. Why do you resist it so hard, Mr. Walker? But well, we got the answer on Tuesday. Caleb Frostman. And if that isn't a name from Central Casting, I've never heard <laughs> okay. it. Um, Caleb Frostman, a local hunter, you know, fisher, uh, working-class guy who had done economic development stuff up in one of the rural counties, filed as a Democratic candidate, ran as just who he was. Uh, but uh, let's tell you who he was. He ran as pro-gay rights, pro-reproductive rights, uh, pro-labor rights, on a real focused, smart campaign, and he won by just about a thousand votes. Amazing, amazing story, and a one. And that's even better news than the first story that you told about. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't know. So, so, uh, but it was an incredible. It's a, this one is a shocker, and the incredible thing is, it's not just a Wisconsin thing. This yeah. is the forty-fourth state legislative race nationally in which a you know, pretty deep Republican seat has flipped to the Democrats since Trump became president. Forty-four state legislative seats have flipped in the last year and a half. So, we, of course, we're looking forward to the November elections, especially for the House, which uh, are coming into sharper focus after the most recent primaries. Just a moment on California here. Pundits often say the road to retaking the House starts in California, especially in seven House districts that Hillary carried in 2016 that are currently represented by Republicans and targeted by Democrats. Uh, we had a primary election here two weeks ago. Um, there was only, uh, of the ones we're watching the most closely, the ones we're watching most closely are in uh, Orange County and one in L.A. County. Um, in, those, in those primary races, uh, the Republican candidate got more than 50% in only one seat. That's the one in Irvine. Uh, so it looks like the Democrats will pick up, will flip at least four Republican seats in California in November, uh, maybe more. The Democrats nationally need to pick up, I think it's 23 seats to take control of the House. So, John Nichols, our question for you is where are the Democrats going to get the other 18 or 19? Are there going to be any 
any uh, takeovers in Wisconsin, my my deep wish, I'm sure yours too, is that Paul Ryan's seat would be uh, won by, uh, we call him the guy with the mustache, Randy Bryce, who's been endorsed by Bernie. That would be so sweet. Uh, I see the Cook Political Report rates this race even now is lean Republican. What do you think the chances are of the Repub- of the Democrats picking up uh, seats in Wisconsin, especially that seat that Paul Ryan has vacated uh, down in Janesville? It's a competitive seat. There's no question of that. Um, I will tell you, honestly, it would have been easier to beat Paul Ryan. Wow. Because Paul Ryan, well, he's taken on all the baggage of this moment. I yeah. mean, he really is the symbol of the collapse of the Republican Party. Uh, it's no longer a Republican Party. It's the party of Trump, and yeah. Ryan is the example of that. So, in a way, the race became perhaps a little tougher when Ryan stood down. But Randy Bryce is still running. He's got a primary he's got to win. If he wins that primary, then um, he has, and uh, running against a woman named Kathy Myers, is actually very good as well. But if Randy Bryce wins, he will be a serious targeted candidate. But I'll tell you something else that's interesting, John, and this is the counsel I give everybody when they're talking the district-by-district politics of 2018. History never wins control of the House from the dominant party in a particular moment on the margins. It never happens, you know, like this district here and that district there. It happens as part of a, a wave, something real that's going on. Uh, sometimes the wave is bigger, sometimes it is smaller. There's no question of that. But the reality is that it, it'll be a national mood shift, or at least it will be a, a national mood pattern. Mm-hmm. And if that is the case, then what we're talking about these legislative races becomes a big deal because it is showing that Democrats can win in very unexpected places. Yeah. They can win races not just in the Hillary districts, right? But remember, these legislative districts we're talking about, these 44 that they flipped, it, many of them were districts that Trump carried by 20 points, yeah. right? He yeah. carried by substantial margins. And so one of the counsels that I give is, as you take a look, um, you know, that Cal Frostland district up in northeast Wisconsin, that's a district represented by a guy named Mike Gallagher. He's a relatively new congressman. He hasn't really been tested. Uh, the fact is, if your state senate district, which covers a lot of the congressional district, just flipped, Take a look at that district. Yeah. Take a look at districts like that across the country. And, and one of the challenges is the Democratic Party too frequently, you know, has its sure bet targeted races that they just know are going to work out fine, right? And then the Republicans, they go in there and they beat those sure bet targeted people. And then you win one someplace that you never expected. Hmm. The better model, the better model is to do ancient history what Democrats did in 1982, long, long ago. As Reagan was in, Reagan uh, had just been elected by a landslide. The economy wasn't that great, so there were real issues there. But what Teddy Kennedy and uh, Tip O'Neill did was they came up with a massive jobs plan, put real numbers on it, and they ran on it. They didn't run on hating on Reagan. They ran on, you know, something that was very tangible, very real. And I think that in this year, of so much chaos with Trump and so much chaos in general, if Democrats run nationally with some coherent themes, not bouncing around all over the place, but a couple of things that they'll tell you this is going to happen if we take the House, um, their potential is very real. And as I watch all these legislative races around the country, all these flips, um, it's the clear pattern. 
across the country is a combination of distaste for Trump, which is mobilizing people on the left, with a really smart economic and social message that essentially says we're going to end this chaos. Well, now it's time for your Minnesota moment, news from my hometown of St. Paul. Of course, the biggest news from St. Paul is the raccoon who climbed the 25-story building. Uh, He was trying to get away from the guys who wanted to catch him. We're not going to cover that on our show. It got enough coverage uh, everywhere else in the media. Um, We're hoping that the Democrats in Minnesota, who are called the DFL, the Democratic Farmer Labor Party, can flip one Republican seat just south of the Twin Cities that's currently occupied by a horrible right-wing radio guy who just won his first term a year ago. Uh, The DFL candidate there is Angie Craig, who's endorsed by Emily's List. I'm especially interested in what's going to happen in northern Minnesota on the Iron Range, which I know you know something about. We're worried that the the DFL will lose the longtime Democratic House seat on the on the Iron Range, uh, w- the range voted for Trump in 2016, and this is one of the few places where people think they will directly benefit from Trump's new tariffs on Chinese and Canadian steel. The it's called the Iron Range because they mine iron ore there and have for more than a century. And the problem is the longtime Democratic House representative up there, Rick Nolan, announced he's retiring. He was first elected back in 1974. This district, however, also includes Duluth, big town for Bernie in 2016. Indeed, you wrote an article for thenation.com why Bernie Sanders is campaigning in Duluth. So this is one of those places that there's a Trump uh, appeal and there's also a Bernie appeal. Do you have any sense of whether the DFL can hold on to the Iron Range in northern Minnesota without Rick Nolan? That's a great setup, man. And by the way, Rick Nolan's running for lieutenant governor. Yes, that's right. He's not not off the radar yet. (laughs) That's right. Uh, Minnesota politics is a fascinating game, and there's a lot of people jumping a lot of races up there. Keith Ellison from the Congressional Progressive Caucus just jumped into the race or um, attorney general. Now, here's the deal on the on the Iron Range because you you're going to a very good place to look at. There's districts like this all over the country, traditional industrial or you know strong union turf that used to be deeply deeply democratic. Yeah. But that Trump Trump got some action. Remember that even as Trump was winning up in that district, I think by around 24 points, a huge victory. Uh, Rick Nolan survived politically. Yeah. So even in that Trump wave, he was able to survive. How did he survive? This is an important thing to understand. Rick Nolan isn't some soft middle-of-the-road Democrat. He is an economic and social progressive. He's very anti-war, one of the leading uh, signers on letters criticizing you know, movements toward military incursions, military actions. He is great on economic issues, really understands you know, a host of health care reforms that are much more radical than than most Democrats propose. And so if Democrats nominate somebody like Rick Nolan, and if they don't take a bit of advice from the Democratic Congressional Committee, <laughs> okay. they could win that seat. Mm. And the reason I say don't take a bit of advice from the DCCC is because Nolan did. The way that Nolan won that district year after year in sometimes really tough races was that he... Um, he had a very distinct style of campaigning. He went out um, to the towns, sometimes at 2 or 3 in the morning with a group of staffers. 
and they would stand on, on very cold northern Minnesota, Minnesota mornings by the side of the road with signs that said, this is your congressman. And then the staffers would, and then there was Rick Nolan waving to them. Wow. People drove to work in the morning. Wow. And you know what? People in rural areas like to see their congressman standing out in the cold. <laughs> With all due respect, and okay. I know that some people in Washington or maybe even New York will laugh at a candidate who does stuff like that, but that's the range. And if you understand the distinct political cultures of different places in the United States, what you eventually come to recognize is that there are ways to win all over this country. They're just not all the same way. And so you need, as I said before, core messages, core political messages that are not you know, not, you know, dumbed down or too soft, that really do talk about economics, that talk about core things. But then you need to let your candidates go their own way and, and communicate in the, in the traditions and the cultures of the place. And Rick Nolan did that. Um, I think there are other candidates around the country that are doing that. Um, I worry a lot about the DCCC. I don't think they get it on an awful lot of issues. But... I will also tell you that when I look at the, you know, the political patterns of the year, there's simply no question that no matter what you hear about all the other this and that, and that when you look at these races for state assembly seats, state house seats, or for the state Senate, and you see them keep on flipping, um, that is powerful evidence that out there in America, there's an awful lot of people who are looking to vote for progressive Democrats, for seats that are currently held by Republicans. Well, we've only got, I don't know, two or three minutes left here. We had some bad news from the Supreme Court uh, about vote, voter suppression, uh, which mm -hmm. raises the question of the Senate. We've been talking here about the House pretty much, but in some ways the Senate is even more important right now because it's the, if the Democrats were able to retake control of the Senate, they would have the power to block Trump from putting another justice on the Supreme Court if, if one of the incumbents resigned. Uh, to gain control of the Senate, the Democrats have to defend, I believe it is, 10 seats in states that Trump won and win two more. Is that possible? Sure. It's entirely possible. But it's hard. I mean, look, it, this is, it's not easy. But remember, they've already won Alabama. Yeah. Okay? So, you know. <laughs> I see where you're going here. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, this is the answer. Uh, again, it, it, the complexity of it is that you may lose one or two Democrats. It is possible. But then you may pick up, potentially, three or four seats currently held by Republicans. How do you do that? Well, you take the whole country seriously. This is one of the problems the Democratic Party has had in recent years. They, they're always kind of playing on the margins. We can maybe win it if we just win this group of ones. Don't do that. You know, nurture up and support candidates running in places across the country. Obviously, some are you're going to push harder because they've got a better chance. But you don't, you, know, you don't give up on anywhere. Because in wave election years, and remember, that's what you, you know, still potentially are looking for here. Yeah. In a wave election year, you could take seats in unexpected places. You have to be ready to do that. And what I will tell you is this. A lot of the Democrats who are running are in tough states, but they, are, they look pretty solid. People like John Tester up in Montana. That's a very Trump state, but he looks pretty solid. And, you know, my gut tells me that you're going to get pretty close, uh, that, that it's a tough one, but it's possible to take the Senate. 
And I want to tell you, brother, after that Supreme Court ruling on uh, Monday, this is a big deal. Yeah. That Supreme Court just endorsed voter suppression. There's simply no other way to say it. And if they're willing to go there, you don't know where they're going to go. So running on the courts, which Democrats have tried in the past but never really done as well as Republicans do, now's the time. Because you cannot let that Supreme Court keep going on the terror that it's going on. It's genuinely destructive. Now is the time. John Nichols, read him at thenation.com. John, it's always great to have you on the show. Thanks so much for talking with us today. Total pleasure, my friend. I'm going to go off right now to promote your book some more. <laughs> okay, thanks a million. Well, that's it for today's Trump Watch. I want to thank my other guest, Seymour Hirsch. His new book is Reporter, a Memoir. Thanks to our engineer, D'Angelo Jones. Thanks to our producer, Renee Reynolds. Thanks, as always, to Rai Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Coming up at 4 tonight on KPFK, this is happening. Jerry quickly interviews the great Greg Pallast. Hey, Trump Watchers, if you missed part of the show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Trump Watch returns next week at the same time on the same station with more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Uh-huh.